we can have better connections with one another, even if it's a fleeting moment with someone that we'll never see again. To me, that's success. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have such an interesting guest today. Jess Pettit pulls together her stand-up comedy years with 15-plus years of diversity training in a wide range of organizations to serve groups to move from abstract fears to actionable habits that lead teams to want to work together. With a sense of belonging and understanding, colleagues take more risks, conserve precious resources through collaboration, and maintain real connections with their clients over time. Her recently published Good Enough Now is a communication and business book with interactive activities and easily applicable tools to help with conversations across differences, as well as overcoming burnout and a general sense of frustration. Jess, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks a lot, Dr. Richard. I appreciate being here. So I think this is going to be a very, very fun an interesting episode. And so we definitely are going to spend some time talking about your book, Good Enough Now, but I'm very interested. I've always been interested in people's whys. Why are they doing the things that they do? So how long have you been on this path that, that you're walking right now? I have been a professional speaker full-time for 13 years, and I worked in the industry primarily on the university level for maybe five or six years prior to that. So 13 years, that pretty much makes you official, I would say, within the industry. So what was it about speaking that made you want to do this? Well, getting fired over and over again was really the main motivator of looking for some other option. And in getting fired a bunch, what I decided to do after the third time was, what is it about this job that I really like? And what is it that I seem to not be very good at? And I really like the discussing or holding spaces for people to talk about contentious topics. I still, that's still my favorite part. And um, managing a supervisor seems to be my least favorite part. So I decided to kind of hang a shingle and see if I could do this on my own. For the record, I did not get fired from my very last job. I quit and started doing this full time. Turns out that if, as long as I have a departing flight, people can handle the truth. So that's our deal. So talk to us more about that. People can handle the truth. Um, well, I, I kind of joke about it and I have a therapist, so I'm okay. But uh, every place that has fired me has now paid a consulting fee for me to come back and do, do the content or the work that I was doing as a full-time job. I think that the key seems to be to, I don't have to be there every week in a staff meeting. Um, which speaks to my inability to maintain relationships, but now we're turning into like a counseling session. 
And I want to I want to talk about Good Enough Now because it's such an exciting book and platform. So talk to us about how you came up with that. Yeah, sure. My previous statement was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess the reality is, is it's actually so true. It might not be a joke. So I was doing diversity trainings on my own for over a decade. And I really, about three years ago, started burning out. I wasn't noticing a difference in my own life. I wasn't noticing a difference in my audience. I think it reached a point where I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do something different. And I realized I don't actually have any other skill sets. And so I had to, short of folding a fitted sheet, which I couldn't really figure out how to monetize. I had to figure out how to flip what I was doing inside out so that if I could do something radically different, perhaps I would get radically different results. So I spent about three years really paying attention to my own excuses, as well as the excuses of my audience members as to why they couldn't have really challenging conversations or how to engage with someone and really connect as if it mattered. And in doing that research, I kind of uncovered that most of us don't feel like we're good. We either feel ill-prepared or fraudulent or guilty or ashamed when it comes to not knowing everything or finding out you offend someone or why you behave a certain way. Once we kind of realize or give some space, I call it space of grace to yourself and to others, then the next real principle or tenet was about what if what you currently have now is actually enough? Might not be perfect, but what if it's enough to at least try to try to do something that really matters? Once that kind of motivation and connection to something larger than yourself actually mattering once that gets kind of established, then what do you do now? So then that's literally good enough now and how it evolved. And the, the premise is to do the best you can with what you got some of the time. How do you, how do you make that determination? So how do you know when is the time? You know, some of the time versus all of the time. So when is the right time to be good enough? I don't know when the right time is, but <laughs> I think that it's our responsibility to notice the patterns that we, of our own behavior, our own responses of when we don't hesitate to respond, what is the pattern of when we do hesitate, but we still do it? And what is the pattern of our own personal behavior where we just don't? We are busy. We opt out. We avoid. I like to say the equivalent of unfollowing instead of unfriending, this kind of like passive response. And if we can notice our own behavior patterns, then we can keep the ones that we like, and then we can actually focus on the ones that we want to change. And that certainly makes sense. Jess, what, what I'd like to do, you, you mentioned that you'd been doing some research on this. Could you talk to us in a little bit more specifics about the research that you undertook and, and what you found exactly as it relates to this? Sure. So uh, my initial research was I did archival research on Mother Teresa Martin Luther King and Gandhi. And my initial work was to kind of figure out what their stumbling blocks were and if they ever felt inadequate or unmotivated or burnt out. And in doing research on the three of them, of course, they all struggled with the same issues because they're human beings. And um, I was able to kind of create a sense of patterns 
um, or archetypes as I call them, using a model that I created that has three variables, head, heart, and action. And all three variables are in all of us. But much like judgments and assumptions, we or our lived experience um, has taught us how to respond. So uh, what has worked in the past or what at least has made us feel safe and prepared, which is how I define what I mean by this works, creates a habit. And those habits tend to fall in line in one of these kind of three archetypes, which because of my research also is kind of headed up by a Mother Teresa, a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King. And then in knowing their own journeys of doing their own work, what their patterns were as to why they doubted whether or not their work would matter. I then began to hear those patterns in my audiences, see them in myself. So while I was doing that research, I read, there's four books, Difficult, Fierce, Courageous, and Crucial Conversations. And while I was reading those books, they really are about in a conversation where there's like a, a talk talker A and a talker B and how A and B can better communicate across a difficult topic. And what I wanted to do was instead of trying to figure out how to adjust how I talk so that I am more successful with talker B, what I wanted to do was to create a process that connected to my research about who am I as a speaker A or as a speaker B? What are the common dynamics? Um, why do those dynamics make me feel safe and prepared? And instead of kind of externally trying to change for or changing other people, really taking responsibility for who I am across difference. That's where I've now ended up. Interesting. And, and you mentioned that through your research, you created these archetypes, head, heart, and action. So obviously, uh, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, and Gandhi are amazing examples of people to follow. But for those listening to this who are thinking, well, how, how do I know which archetype I fit into? Could you break down what those three are and, and how people can identify which one of those they best fit with? Sure. The, the cliff note version. Um, and I should also say for your listeners, um, you can go to goodenoughnow.com slash freebies, F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. And download a bunch of videos and handouts and um, goodenoughnow.com slash survey is a fun survey that you can do that's actually a self-assessment tool that can kind of show you, at least in that moment, which one of the variables you're responding from the most. The, without getting into the super complications of the model and the archetypes and how this applies, head, heart, and action. Head does not mean intellectual. It just means detail-oriented. Um, heart does not mean emotional or maternal or paternal. It means a connection to a larger idea. And action-oriented uh, doesn't mean exercise. It just means the doing of things. And so if we were to take the folks I did my research on, so like Gandhi, for example, Gandhi, I would say, is a head action person, but let's just focus on the action piece for a second. But like his hunger strike, his individual hunger strike he thought would be strong enough to overthrow a government. Well, that's doing something. And to be honest, it's also really egotistical and very difficult to work with. And we all work with someone like that who doesn't play well with others, 
and just wants to do everything on their own, doesn't like to collaborate. I'm very much like this. So if Gandhi's more of an action-oriented kind of archetype or icon, um, when you follow his work, his biggest stumbling blocks was that his work wasn't connected to anything larger. So when he stumbled into the concept of compassion, that is when he actually started working with other folks successfully and his work actually began to have an impact. Or I would say he was aligned and became unstoppable. When we talk about Mother Teresa, uh, Mother Teresa is very much a um, head person. Um, I think as a heady person, she kind of constantly was questioning her options, slower to make decisions necessarily. Part of the reason upon her death, it took so long for her to be sainted was that her close friends weren't aware kind of where she was in her belief system because she was constantly questioning her own belief system. And I think at the time, it makes sense that she's questioning the will of God and whether it was the will of God to have this much suffering on the planet or was it the will of God for her to intervene? That's some pretty heavy questions that she needed yeah. to process through. And the kind of third piece, I would say that Mother Teresa is a head heart person. So what ended up happening is when she realized she had the resources and the tools to build a school, that was when she was able to kind of align and show up unstoppable. And then last but not least, Martin Luther King is obviously a heart person who literally had a dream, not a plan, was significantly dependent on people scurrying behind him and behind the scenes to do things that he believed in. When his work, if you read his letters and his journals, he needed a system. He needed the headpiece. The system that he was able to connect his work to ended up being an economic system and he started working towards um, equality of a living wage. And when he connected his work to an economic system, that is when he was completely aligned and his work became unstoppable. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. So I've heard you use the term unstoppable three times, and it sounds like from these examples you've given that in order to get to that point of unstoppability, if that's a word, it is being able to connect your efforts, your actions to something larger than yourself. Am I on point in, in, with that? The language of larger than yourself, for some people, it's really tactical, like they just need to know what to do. So they would say like, oh, no, I don't need anything larger. I'm spinning all the way out here. So like Mother Teresa was like, oh, oh, build a school. Like that's very tangible. Yeah. So so the, in theory, if my model seems to be working is, uh, number one, we all have learned how to be 
And our life has taught us that typically one of these archetypes works really well for us and that we feel safe and we feel prepared, not necessarily right or accurate, but we feel safe and prepared if we behave this way. So then the idea is instead of like rolling your eyes at somebody who's super annoying, number one, their life has taught them how to be this way. And in doing research on my social justice icons, they were also horrifically annoying. And why? Why did their life teach them to be this way? And then then I can get one level deeper and be like, oh, I'm super annoying. Well, this is how my life has taught me to be. And for me, I'm a very head action person. And I know that the way that my excuses are fueled, but I would also say the way I'm kind of empowered when um, all the elements fall into place really is for me, the connection um, like Gandhi with compassion. For me, it's about mattering. There are times still that I feel burnt out or it's very hard for me to be optimistic every single day. That's why like some feedback from people or hearing from an audience member or someone who's read my book or someone's podcast or something that like something helped them has a miraculous impact on me because it fuels me to keep going to the next piece. Other people are fueled by details. Other people are fueled by action-oriented things. That makes sense. And you mentioned that, for example, Mother Teresa, you called her head heart. So she had kind of com- combining characteristics of two of those. It, do you, In your research, have you found that people move through these? That you know, Obviously, they can have different elements of them or can transition, say, from head to action or how much flexibility is in there with those? Yeah. So it's a very like heady question. So good job. Um, So all three variables are in all of us. Um, We tend to lean on two, maybe one, um, based on what our life has taught us is the safest, most prepared way to show up. But the, the third variable is still always there. Because the third variable, so if I'm I'm a head action person, so um, if I'm not feeling empowered or very able or very aligned, uh, chances are my excuses are very concerned about me being a fraud, uh, people finding out I'm a fake, or not feeling enough in the the sense that. Um, I'm just one person. I'm the person who like, I don't understand picking up litter because the whole planet is burning to the ground. Right, good, okay. But picking up this one Snickers wrapper actually enables that Snickers wrapper to be in a different place, right? Like it it makes this place prettier. Um, So connecting, when my work connects into improving a space for other people or beauty or the aesthetics or compassion or something bigger, then I am more aligned and I feel more empowered. But all three variables are in us at all times. If someone is particularly, like you said, Mother Teresa's more head hearty, the action-oriented stuff kind of shows up like the spinning rainbow ball of death or a blue screen. It's still there. They just have no idea what to do. Um, When I work with organizations, this is actually how most volunteers get lost. Because volunteers who are more action are looking for the action-oriented place to connect with an an organization or a nonprofit or something they really care about, Um, the last thing you want to do is make them sit through an entire meeting about what they could do. 
do you end up losing them because they don't want to attend meetings? And then when you need someone to actually move chairs or something, the people who are looking for that third element are gone. So that's that kind of piece. And then lastly, the heart action folks, one of uh, Martin Luther King's biggest insecurities was part of the reason that he had a PhD before he was 40. He was an ordained minister. He was constantly seeking success inside systems. So even if it was, if it's holding you back or if it's motivating you, it's still that third element. That makes sense. And thank you for clarifying that because that was a very, very quality deep dive there on the question that I had. I want to, I want to transition us a little bit though. So, you know, we're, and I want to, in doing so, bring us back to the Good Enough Now book because we've gone through the archetypes. And so now somebody who reads your book, they have a pretty good handle on what archetype or rather combination of archetypes that they, mm-hmm. they possess. And where do they go from there within the book? What's what's the next thing that they're going to get from reading this book? Yeah. So what's so fascinating is as I was writing the book, I really thought, and I'm a very heady person, right? So I thought this system with these icons would be like the bulk of the book. And um, <laughs> it turns out that uh, this model is the prologue of the book. But I think that if you have like a solid understanding of kind of where my research and my model came from, the rest of the book is really a self-reflection tool. Um, A lot of those conversation books that I've referenced, which were great tools, are all about shifting your conversation so that talker B or speaker B hears you in a different way so that you're more successful, which to me almost felt manipulative um, or got kind of salesy, like, oh, if I do this, then I'll get my car for a cheaper price. And so what I tried to do throughout my entire book was to really pay attention instead of kind of shifting for the other person is really deciding who and how do I want to be. And so instead of fixing the annoying person at work, it's when am I the annoying person at work? When can I take responsibility for that? When do I approve of that kind of behavior? So the rest of the book really, which is the bulk, right, really goes through a process of who are you? How did you get this way? What do you want to keep? What do you want to edit? And what's kind of incongruent? And I think that that's an important piece too, is is that there are things about me that are incongruent. Like, for example, I identify as a pacifist. I cuss like a sailor. I punch buttons in elevators. My phone blows up. But I... I don't want to spend the energy on really practicing on removing all words from my language that are rooted in violence. Well, that's an incongruent thing. How fascinating. Now, move along. So there are parts of me that I am more interested in actually changing and growing and developing. And there's parts of me that I think are amazing. So I don't want to throw those out either. So after kind of getting through those pieces, then you move into where did these behavior patterns and habits come from. So you actually go through your own life and figure out what are your crucible moments that had a positive impact or a negative impact on the ability to feel safe and prepared. And how does that show up in a staff meeting? How does that show up at a school board meeting? How does that show up when you're parenting? So you're doing your own work through the enough section. And then um, the now section really is about, okay, so. How are you going to live your best life with this information? And 
the ability to be kind to yourself is that this is not a 24-7 process. Again, the idea is to do the best you can with what you got some of the time. I love that. That makes perfect sense. And, and I want to—I do want to transition because we're getting kind of close on time here. But one of the things that I think is a great question to ask somebody who's been doing the work you're doing in fifteen in the past fifteen years is obviously society has changed tremendously in, in large respect because of social media and how pervasive that is in everybody's lives today. And certainly in this country, we're more divided than we've ever been. So. If you could talk to us, Jess, about the challenges now versus the challenges then and how we can better connect with each other and understand each other's different viewpoints in today's world would be wonderful. Absolutely. And uh, my grandmother is raising her eyebrow from beyond this life right now because you're not supposed to disagree with your hosts. But um, here goes nothing. I don't actually think that we are more polarized now than we ever have been. I think we're being told that we are more polarized now. Tell us why. Tell us why. Sure. Um, I think the let's let's take unfollowing versus unfriending versus actually having a conversation with a real life human being. It is easier for me to unfollow someone because I don't have to be confrontational. If I unfriend someone, I can always like blame it on Facebook. Right. Or like, well, I must have hit a button wrong if confronted. But the reality is, is that neither of these skills are allowing me to take responsibility for like, I don't want this nonsense in my life. Right. Like if you, there's people that I, I'm not interested. Like I actually just unfollowed someone this morning because everything they post is super negative, everything. And I'm like, I have enough negative stimulation in my life. I unfollowed them. What I would call the passive aggressive nature of unfriending or unfollowing versus having a conversation with like, Hey, I'm noticing this. What is going on with you? That is what we did before social media. And that is now what we do. Right. So what I mean in real life is I was just doing some consulting work at a hospital and they have very high marks for customer service. One of the practices of the hospital is when no matter your job, no matter how high or how low, if you see a room with their light, they need assistance light on, you are obligated to walk into that room and find out what they need. That sounds amazing and great. So then I ask them, if you're running late, how often are you to take the long way to a meeting because the short way you see a light on in the hallway? And they were very uncomfortable, but they all eventually admitted to it. So if you're going to have this expectation of like empathy and compassion, but actually not acknowledge the reality that sometimes we are self-absorbed and don't have time to be empathetic and compassionate, then how are we ever going to increase empathy and compassion? And we can't just be blaming social media for this because we do this in person all the time. Now, the flip piece that I think is important is that where we think we are very different and where we think we are very polarized, let's have a conversation about that in general. I just facilitated a conversation in my, I live in a very small rural town. I facilitated a conversation on gun laws and gun access. The nickname of my town is Pistols and Crystals. People were from both sides of this very contentious conversation, were very nervous. I was setting them up. And what it ended up happening is everybody was talking about safety. So we started the conversation about safety. 
And then we had a very civil discourse about misinformation on both sides or all 20 sides of this issue. I keynote recently, uh, politics came up and about how hard it is to work as teams because you can't talk about politics. Okay, great. Let's take the most recent presidential election just up because by the time this airs, the next election will be even closer. So number one, the vast majority of registered voters in the United States did not vote for anybody for president. Of the people who did vote for president, the vast majority of the people who did vote voted for somebody because they weren't someone else. That's what happens when you have a two-party system. We now have this in common. Why on earth can't we talk about politics? Doing that provides a space for people to actually listen to one another and realize that we're being told we're polarized. But if I'm not actually doing anything to polarize it, then it must be you. And if you're the one who's doing polarizing, then I don't have to change my behavior or take responsibility. I just outwardly want to fix everything else. And that's exactly why I have job security. Interesting. Well, you're... uh, (laughs) So... Your grandma who's raising her eyebrow, she should be happy. That was an awesome response. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, you know, Jess, we're, we're very close to time. This has been very interesting. And and hopefully in listening to this and people go out and pick up your book, which we'll give the link to in just a minute, it will help them, you know, be more comfortable to have those discussions, not not just in the workspla- workplace, but in, in their personal lives as well with people they have relationships with. So thank you for that. Absolutely. My hope is that we can have better connections with one another, even if it's a fleeting moment with someone that we'll never see again. To me, that's success. I love it. And and you might have just answered this question, but as you know, I do wrap up all of my shows by asking my guests their biggest helping, the single most important piece of information they want somebody to walk away with after hearing our chat today. So again, do the best you can with what you already have some of the time, and it'll make all the difference in the world. Well said. Jess, where can people find you? Goodenoughnow.com is the website slash freebies, F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. You can get all the activities and the survey and some videos and handouts and everything from the book as well. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It was great having you. This was a really cool discussion. And for those of you who are at the gym or behind the wheel, we've got you covered. We'll have links to everything we talked about in today's episode at the show notes at thedailyhelping.com, as well as in the Daily Helping app available in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Well, Jess, you thanked me, but thank you for coming on the show. This was a phenomenal discussion. Absolutely. Thank you for all your work. It really matters. Appreciate that for sure. And I appreciate each and every one of you who tuned into this episode to listen to it. If you like the discussion, go out and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 